Shall we come to our God in prayer again? Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. As we come into your presence, almighty God, we acknowledge that you are the King of kings and that you are the Lord of lords. We acknowledge that you are creator. And we pray that as we come into this time of worship, we come to this time of praise, that we would have our hearts focused on you, that our minds would not be distracted, that we would be able to give you the attention that you deserve. We pray that we will be marvelling at your ways. We pray that we will be responding to the love that you have shown us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way he was willing to leave the perfection of heaven above and come and live in this dark world. The way he was willing to be subjected to the abuse from those he had created, and then to die that horrible death, so that 
we could be forgiven if we come in faith and believe, trusting that his death is the way our sins can be forgiven. We thank you that there is that way that, Father God, we can approach you through him. And Lord, we ask that if there are any here tonight who do not know you, if there are any here who have not come to you, seeking that forgiveness, trusting in you, we pray that tonight you would be gracious and merciful to them. We pray that you would draw them to you in love. Open the eyes of unbelief that they may see their need of the sin. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be active in working in all of our lives, in all of our hearts. Lord, conviction of sin and pointing to Jesus. And we pray for those of us who know you as our Saviour, that we pray that our lives would be a reflection of your love to us. We pray that we would be rooted in you. And as we live our lives, Lord, people would see the way we live them is because of our love for you. Help us to be different from those round about us because of the way you are working in our lives. Lord God, we, we want to bring to you before you our government. We ask that as we've had this period of turmoil, this period of change, we ask that you would, Lord, in some way, Lord, get the government to look to you for wisdom. We pray that you would be an influence for good on them. We remember any MPs in, in our government who believe in you, who want to follow you. We pray that you would strengthen them so that they are an influence for good. And we, may we uphold them in our prayers. Lord, we want to bring our cares and concerns to you. Lord, we remember those in hospital. Lord, you know each one. You know their various needs. Lord, we ask for a measure of healing if it is your will. Lord, for those who are very ill, we ask for peace. Lord, we ask you to be with the family as they support those who are in hospital. We thank you for those who have recently been in hospital but are home recovering from operations. And we pray that you would be with them and that you would continue to give recovery and to give healing, however slow that may be. We ask that they would have patience as they go through the healing process. Lord God, we want to um, commit the prison work to you up and down this country at this time. Lord, we thank you that we do hear of those who are in prisons who come to know you. Lord, we're so thankful that no one is past um, your forgiving power. And we ask that as your word goes into the prison, whether it be on a Sunday service, whether it be through an exploring Christianity Explored course, or something similar, whether it be through literature or Bible study groups, that those men who hear your word will be changed. Lord, we pray that we would see souls added to your kingdom, even from our own prisons. Father God, we want to commit to you the schoolwork too. We thank you that Mark has opportunities to go into some of the local schools and speak to the children. 
Lord, we ask from a young age they would come to know you as their saviour. Lord God, we're so thankful that you can work in many, many ways. We're so thankful that nothing is impossible for you. And we ask that through these works, your name would be honoured and glorified in everything that we do. Lord God, we want to commit to you the home groups on Thursday and ask that as we gather around your word, Lord, what you teach us, we will put into practice in our lives. And we pray that every day for our own individual Bible readings. Lord, as we read our Bibles by ourselves, Lord, we pray that you would be speaking to us through them and they would be impacting our lives for your honour and for your glory. Lord, we, we pray for your word. We pray that as Brian brings your word to us later in the service. Lord, that you would bless it. Lord, that it would go out and achieve the very purpose for which you are sending it. But we pray that it would bring you honour and would bring you glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. For our, our second song, it's a new song that we haven't had before. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. Now before we stand and sing, John is going to play it all the way through for us. And after we have sung this, then Brian, as many of us know, is an author and he's going to come and talk about one of his books that he's doing at the moment. Thank you, John.
Well, this is not my book. This is uh, Heidi Crowter's book. I simply acted as editor for it. Now, the name Heidi Crowter will mean something to a number of you, I'm sure. The Crowters, of course, mean something to you because Steve Crowter, Heidi's father, was baptized here many years ago. And, of course, Phil and Rosie were married here as well. So the Crowters are well known. Now, Heidi, of course, is the young lady who uh, has uh, Down syndrome and lives a very, very full life. Uh, She is the young lady who has taken the government to court on the case of discrimination for those with disabilities, and that's a case that is still running. Uh, Shortly, well, about six or seven years after she was born, her parents wrote a very uh, moving account under the title Surprise Package. Some of you will have read that. Uh, How they coped, how they handled the situation. Time rolled by, Heidi grew up, went to mainstream school, did extremely well, uh, moved out of home, lived an independent life, uh, and in fact just two years ago, right in the middle of COVID, because Heidi does nothing conventionally, uh, she married uh, James, who also has uh, um, Down syndrome and is a delightful young Christian man. Now, it was time that we brought the story up to date, and that is what we have done in this book that is called um, I'm Just Heidi. Because that's how Heidi wants to be known. Not as Howdy with Down Syndrome, but I'm Just Heidi. It is a very moving story. The first part of the book is much the same as Surprise Package. But then we move into Heidi and James's own story in their own words. And it's very moving. Uh, I, I want to commend the book to you. It's often heartbreaking. You will not read it without tears. It is always honest. It is frequently amusing to the point of being hilarious. So you will not read it without laughing. But it is always exceptionally challenging. And I therefore bring this recent edition. It came out just about three months, two months ago. Uh, and I bring it to your attention. Now, if you are interested in getting a copy, um, I've just recently dragooned Martin into this. Um, let Martin know. It's a book that costs £8. If a number of you want it, I think we can reduce that by just over a half. Um, but let Martin know. You can, it's the book you can read, enjoy, be challenged by, and then pass on to others. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Brian. Well, we're going to turn to God's Word now, and we're going to the book of Acts, which if you have your Bible with you, we're on chapter 1, which is page 909, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. So the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he said, you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so read God's word. Brian will be um, preaching from John 17, but using that passage as, as a background when his title is sermon, of his sermon is, I am coming to you now. But before that, let's sing our next hymn. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, while heaven's eternal anthem drowns, all music but its own. Let's stand and sing.
Turn with me then, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 17. John 17. Exactly where chapters 15 to 17 took place, we can't be certain. They're very likely in the upper room. But here is Jesus in chapter 17 in his most personal, intimate prayer with his Father in heaven. I always say that whenever I don't know where to turn in the Bible because I just want to read something, John 17 is almost always where I find myself. And I would like you to turn to John 17 and we'll read verses 11 through 13. John 17 and verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they, his disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. That name, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of perdition, destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy in themselves, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I am coming to you. Jesus knew what immediately lay before him. Arrest, beating, trial, crucifixion, death. And yet, in his great prayer, all that is passed over. And the focus is on his return to glory with his Father. What we call the ascension, the going up of Jesus. At the last meal with his disciples, we are told... In chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Always, Christ kept in his mind the ultimate glory of his return, his ascension. He was certain of it and he focused on it continually. But you know, this is one part of the whole ministry of Christ that is so often overlooked. We spend a lot of time, and we will be in a month's time, well, we already are, thinking about his birth. And then we move on, of course, to his life and his teaching, and we expand on that, and rightly so. And then we come to his death, and of course, his powerful resurrection. But if we ever think of the ascension, It's really only the way to get him back to heaven. 
not much more than that. 39 days after Easter and 11 before Pentecost. Next Saturday is the Lord Mayor's procession or show in London. It's a glittering display of pageant and carnival. The Lord Mayor of the City of London travels in a gold state, state coach uh, drawn by six horses with the Royal Fusiliers accompanying and scores of decorated floats and representatives of many guilds and societies. I think this year there's going to be about 126 floats. Some 6,000 people will be in the procession. It's British pageantry, almost at its best. Where are they going? Well, actually, they're going from Mansion House in the City of London to the Royal Courts of Justice. And how far is that? 1.7 miles. And how long does it take? Three and a half hours. And you might say, well, isn't that a little bit OTT for a short journey? Why not just take a black cab or phone up Ubo? It's quite simple. Ah, but you miss the importance behind it. And that's what we need to consider. You see, there's a deep significance in that very short journey. Uh, it's been unbroken for almost 800 years. Even World War II didn't break it. It was broken once in the late 18th, 19th century for the funeral um, of um, uh, uh, Wellington, Duke of Wellington. And then, I'm afraid, not until COVID-1920 or 2021 unbroken, so important. Well, very simply, because the Lord Mayor of uh, the City of London, different from the Mayor of London, the Lord Mayor of the City of London was a very, very important person. And when he was installed, he had to go to the Royal Courts of Justice to make his allegiance to the monarch. That's how it, what it's all about. We must see the ascension of Christ as far more than the root back to heaven. It was his inauguration or investiture as the priest and king of all those people whom God gave to his son before creation. And, and this lies behind Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy? So that he did not return empty-handed, but when he returned to heaven, he returned to present to his father all his redeemed people. Now look again at our text. I'm coming to you now, but I say this while I'm still in the world. Why but? Well, the reason he said this while he was still in the world was so that the disciples could see how confident he was to the Father and how focused he was as he approached the time of his intense suffering. He was going to be through some, go through something that would scandalize even his disciples. But he wanted them to keep something in the mind. Where is he going? I'm coming to you, Father. He wanted them to have the full measure of my joy, it's right here, in them. I want them to be as confident as I am that though I'm going to a cross and all that that will involve, I will be seen to be weak and helpless and incredibly humiliated. That is not the end, there's much more beyond. So, 
What is the significance of Christ's ascension, the going up? First of all, the ascension is evidence of his absence. Do you remember the occasion in, recorded in John 20 where Mary comes to the tomb and she stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept and bent over to look into the tomb she saw two angels in white where Jesus' body had been one at the head and one at the foot and she asks, they asked her woman, why are you crying? and she says, well, they've taken him away and I don't know where they've put him and then she turns round and she sees someone she thinks is the gardener and she says to him look, if you've taken him away tell him where he is, I'll go get him you see The death and the empty tomb did not convince Mary where he was. Somebody's taken him. He's gone somewhere. Removed. Stolen. The empty tomb was actually not enough for the disciples. So Jesus later on took his disciples outside Jerusalem. Acts 1, verse 8. And there, before their very eyes, he was taken up into heaven out of their sight. Why did he need to do that? Well, because without the ascension, having appeared to his disciples at various times in the previous few days and weeks, without the ascension, they may still be wondering, so, so, so where is he now? Where is he? We can't see him here, nor do we want to. We are eagerly expecting to see him there and not before. So the disciples are taken outside and they see him disappear up into the heavens and the angels say to them, you see that? He's gone. He is no longer here. He has gone to heaven, but he's coming back again. As you saw him go, you will see him come. No disembodied spirit floating around somewhere. Where is Jesus? We know where he is. The ascension is the evidence of his absence. But the second thing is that the ascension demonstrates that his work was complete. The importance of his absence was simply he came to do the will of his father, carried it out perfectly, and then he could say in verse 13, I am coming to you now. It does not mean at this very moment, but now I have almost finished my course. I am in the last lap, the last hurdle, the last battle to be fought. My mission is almost over. He came to bring glory to God by revealing God to the world. How did he do this? By his life. And we have a record of that in the four Gospels. He came to win people of his own to be a special people. How did he do that? By dying on the cross and taking our guilt and our sin and our shame upon himself. He came to defeat the last enemy, death. And how did he do that? By his resurrection from the dead, overcoming death. But he came also to destroy the work of Satan in your life and mine. The devil's graffiti written all over us. And how did he accomplish that? Do you remember the promise 
that God gave to the human race at the very moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin, recorded way back in Genesis chapter 3. You, Satan, will bruise his heel, but he, Satan, will crush you. Or 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Now great and essential as the life, the death and the resurrection of Christ was and is, the ascension was the final triumphant entry into the very place he left to begin his work of rescue. Celebration is not when the rescue mission goes out, but when it returns victoriously, successfully, mission accomplished. The ascension was proof that the enemy number one had been defeated. Because when he ascended up on high, Paul tells the Ephesians, he led captivity captive. God made you alive with Christ, wrote Paul. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code and its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And the evidence of that was not only the resurrection, but the ascension into heaven. And Paul has a picture of a Roman victory procession. It was rather like our uh, Lord Mayor's show, except it wasn't funny. In AD 47, four years after General Plautius brought his Roman legions to what became Britannia Romana uh, and uh, defeated the Celts, the British whatever you want to call them at that time, one of the leading, the leading captive was Caraticus. Uh, Caradoc, Caracticus, however you want to pronounce him, I'm going to pronounce him Caraticus. And he was the leader of the whole tribe that fought heroically against the Romans and lost. And he was taken captive to Rome. The Roman triumphant procession was the crowning achievement of a Roman general and General Plautius had this in AD 47, a few years after he had landed here. Garlands of flowers were prepared to decorate every shrine and image. Incense smoked on all the altars as the procession went through. It was one of great triumph. The Senate came first with trumpeters to announce the arrival and then came all the carts laden with the spoil. I don't know what they got from here, but anyway, they brought all the carts laden with spoil. Then came the musicians and the animals for sacrificing to the gods. Uh, They were followed by the enemy leaders themselves, captives in chains as Caraticus was. And then the triumphant general himself wreathed with a crown of laurel, riding on a great chariot drawn by four horses, and he wore a a gold-embroidered robe and a flowered tunic, and he held a laurel bough in his right hand and a scepter in his left. And he wore a great laurel wreath on his head. And finally then, the great body of his infantry. What a spectacle! How intimidating, how incredible! 
And therefore, intention was, we have utterly, completely defeated and disarmed the enemy. And that's what the ascension was. It was Christ going back in front of his disciples saying, Satan may have a while yet, but he is ultimately, completely defeated. The cross was a terrible battle. How was the victory ultimately seen? The resurrection, yes. But the ascension, when he went back into heaven. The Roman processional route was lined with great cauldrons of sweet-smelling incense. Some of the prisoners were to be executed, some exiled, a few, not many, freed into slavery. The incense was the smell of life for some and the stench of death for others. I don't want to spoil the story but for his courageous speech before the emperor Caraticus was exiled to remain with his family in Rome and that's where an exciting story begins. Paul had this in mind in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death, to one to the other he says the fragrance of life. Christ's ascension was the victory parade of freedom for his people, but the stench of death for Satan. Satan, you see, always thought his chance would come when he entered Judas Iscariot and urged him to betray Jesus. Kill this Messiah, and all the promises of God in the Old Covenant are dead and finished. And so he did through Judas and his betrayal, the Messiah died. A crucifixion would be his great triumph. And on the cross when Christ cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had Satan forced an irreconcilable rift between the Son and the Father? Or was there something deeper that Satan never knew? With the resurrection and then the great procession as Christ returned to his father, Satan knew it was all over. The best he could now do was make war on the Christians on earth. But, as Martin Luther put it centuries ago, he knew his doom was writ. I mustn't allow my imagination to run too far. But we don't need to think of heaven in terms of cities of this world, though that's how the Bible describes it, because there's no other way it can. But I want to see Christ in my imagination, approaching the heavenly city, and all the angelic hosts are there to meet him and greet him. They had wanted to come many uh, many days beforehand, when he hung on that cruel cross, sweating in the sun, 
bleeding profusely in desperate pain and carrying our guilt and our sin to make matters a thousand million times worse. And God said, leave him alone. Leave him alone. But now, now they're free. Oh yes, then they would have come and snatched their beloved Lord and Saviour back up into heaven. But now they can. And they're there to greet him. Can you see them? Can you see them? They pour out of this city of heaven to welcome him home. A great shout of praise and songs of joy and trumpets are sounded and the victory is proclaimed and the devil hears it all and trembles. Now our Christ is honoured above all and is given a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. The importance of the ascension The evidence of his absence. His work is complete. But the other evidence of his absence lies in the little word, but. It's evidence that his work is incomplete. I have made known to you, and I will continue to make you known. Verse 26. How on earth could he continue to make God known if death had finally claimed him or if he had in some way remained physically here in Israel? By his ascension, he promised to send the Holy Spirit who will be the presence of God in everyone who trusts in Jesus. And through them, he will go on winning men and women to Christ. That is how his work will be complete. I tell you the truth, it is for your good I am going away, he says in John 16. Unless I go away, the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, through you, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And he promised that wherever his people are, there he will be. And wherever a Christian is, there he is, by his Holy Spirit. So that... His work will go on as we lead men and women to Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Through his people here on earth, he will continue to make the Father known by their words and by their lives. Christian, that's your task and mine to complete the work that Jesus began leading men and women to him. Now all over the world, not only in a small 120-mile strip of land in the Middle East, but from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, men and women, boys and girls, young people are coming to Christ. The evidence of his absence, his work complete, oh, and his work incomplete. But the fourth value of his ascension is that it promises our resurrection and his return. How could he possibly return from where he did not go? He doesn't appear before his father empty-handed. 
all those for whom he died, past, present and future, all true Christians in every age, and that goes right back into the beginning of the Old Testament, right on until the moment when he comes again, whenever that will be, all of those Christians in every age and generation are now guaranteed a place in heaven with him. All those, without exception, for whom he died, Because he said very simply in John 14 to his disciples and to us through them, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the ascension demonstrates this. Can you see, he says to the disciples, I'm going. Why am I going? To present my work to the Father so that you may come with me and I will come back to receive you to me. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. They meant it. It's true. And in Acts chapter 3, the apostle preaching in the streets of Jerusalem says, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Now, my dear friends, there's no lingering doubt where the body of Christ is. We know he rose, but you don't have to worry. But what then? Where is he? The assurance is that he's returned to his rightful place in the glory of God. And that brings us great joy. Because we know that where he is, is where he promised. And where he promised is where he will come from. And one day he surely will. I want those you have given me to be where I am, he says, verse 24, and to see my glory. I want them to be with me where I am. Can the Father deny this prayer? Are you doubting tonight, Christian, your salvation? Are you questioning whether you really are secure in Christ? Do you ever worry about the loved ones that you have seen go in Christ before you? Are they all right? Listen to him. I want those you have given me to be where I am and see my glory. He's so eager for his people to be finally and forever gathered with him in the new heavens and the new earth. What an exciting and joyful prospect that should be for us all. And we have the promise of his return that dear Paul gives us. He will come from heaven with a great shout and the trumpet call of God. There's only twice in history the trumpet call of God will ever sound. It sounded on Mount Sinai. And we're yet to hear it again. The sin of Adam shut the door of heaven fast, but Christ has opened it for all who will trust in him alone for salvation. Have you? Have you? And the angels with blazing swords set to guard the entrance to the gate of paradise that we read about in the Garden of Eden are now stood down And the door of the heavenly paradise swings wide open for everyone, however falteringly they put their trust in Jesus. Psalm 24 is looking forward to the ascension of Christ and reminds us that the gates are wide open for the King of glory to enter, but they don't close behind him. C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus has gone up and opened the door that had been locked to humanity since the death of Adam. Thank God he did. Thank God he has. Christ prayed, I'm coming to you now so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
Do you know what kept the Apostle Paul going through all his suffering for Jesus Christ, his beating, his stoning, his shipwreck, his cold, his thirst, his hunger, his heat, the bandits, the betrayal, the threats and and imprisonment? What kept him going? What keeps our brothers and sisters going all across the world today in their hell holes of prisons that nations have invented for them? and the terrible situations they are going through. What is it? If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men, he says. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's what kept him going. Evidence of his absence. His work complete. His work incomplete. The promise and guarantee of our resurrection and our presence with him in heaven when he returns. And finally, the guarantee of the Christian's acceptance with the Father both now and forever. Jesus said to to Mary, Go, tell my brothers, I am returning to my Father and to your Father. Uh, Some historians tell us that the victorious Roman general who rode in the chariot had a slave beside him who kept whispering in his ear, all fame is fleeting. All fame is fleeting. Isn't that true? Twenty-seven people stood representing Britain on the gold podium at the Beijing Olympics. How many can you mention? All fame is fleeting, but not for Christ. Since his ascension back to his Father and his gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, for 2,000 years, billions of people I know, billions of people across the world know him and worship him and talk of him and love him and serve him. All fame is fleeting, but not with our Jesus. He must remain in heaven, says Paul, uh, Peter, when he's preaching in Jerusalem, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy apostles. He's there for a purpose. He's ready to come. All is now ready. It only needs the Father to say, now is the time and all things will be restored as once they were, and better. In Scripture, Christ is sometimes seen as sitting, standing, walking, or simply being in heaven. If I may put it this way, the main value of Christ's presence in heaven now is that he presents his completed work to the Father on behalf of his people. His intercession, referred to in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, he ever lives to make intercession for us, is not a constant supplication to the Father, but an eternal application to the Father. He's not all the time praying to the Father. You pray a prayer, Jesus hears it, he takes it, he sends it on. That's not what he's doing. He simply is there as the application of all that he ever did for you and for me. And the Father always sees it. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was the end of his ascension. He sat down beside his Father 
What a picture. And as we heard this morning, as John was preaching, hope you were here. God raised us up with him, says Paul, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Paul says, as I look at it now, you're already there. It's part of what is meant by the word glorified in Romans 8. We are glorified. We are fit now, ready to be with him. The time has not yet come. It will come fairly soon for all of us here. Yes, you young ones, it will come fairly soon for all of us here when we will be there. And will that be a joyful day or a terrifying day to stand before the Father? And I love the thought that on that day Jesus will be there and as I come to him to, before the Father to give an account of my life, Jesus will say, Father, this one is mine. This one is mine. Will he say that of you? According to his own word, he is also preparing the kingdom for the reception of his people. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what this preparation fully means, we may never know until we inherit the possession and then we'll find out. It's beyond even our imagination for splendor, but you can go on trying. God is quite happy for us to use our imagination because one day he'll smile at us and say, see, it was much better, wasn't it? And as we're waiting for his appearing, his revealing, his coming in glory, what the Bible again and again calls the day, this will be one single momentous event. At his coming, the curtain will be withdrawn and that which has been hidden will be revealed in glory. It will be his day, his day of ultimate triumph and glory and reunion with his church and the judgment of all who reject him, however much they had heard about him. I am coming to you now as some of the most confident and encouraging words of Christ. The ascension was his final word when leaving his disciples. But listen, they're not his last words. His last words you'll find in Revelation 22. Yes, I'm coming soon. To which we reply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. In our mind, our sovereign God, we glimpse, glance, just a moment at the ascension of Christ. He's going back so that we know where he is and we know who he sent the Holy Spirit to represent him here perfectly like him unseen but all that we need for godliness and the life that we need to live and Father we thank you that we can see Jesus our Saviour seated at your right hand in all his splendour and glory And we thank you that all that he did in that long, painful journey 
from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the cross to the tomb and the glorious triumphant reception into heaven was for me a sinner a rebel someone who for too long had really no thought for you got along okay without you I thought and then you opened my eyes broke into my hard heart and brought me face to face with the Christ on the cross and one day oh one day Lord when I am with you there you will say to the Father this one is mine thank you And we all who love you, thank you. In his name, amen.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.